Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us on Philanthropy Infusion, which puts the spotlight on equity in philanthropy and new ways to give. I'm Michelle Woodard, host and co-producer, coming to you from the Kelson on the Air Social Work podcast, a Kelson Communications, Inc. production. I'm honored to introduce today's guest, Ebony Johnson Cooper. Ms. Cooper is the founder and CEO of Young Black and Giving Back Institute and Give 828. She is principal consultant of Friends of Ebony, LLC, and an adjunct professor at the University of Maryland. Ms. Cooper is a sought-after public speaker, has been featured in Essence, Jet Magazine, The Washington Post, and HuffPost Impact. She's an ambassador for the National Museum of African American History and Culture and is a member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority, Inc., Black Benefactors Giving Circle, and Reed Temple AME Church. Ms. Cooper holds a Master of Divinity from Wesley Theological Seminary, a Master of Science in Public Relations and Corporate Communications from NYU, a Bachelor of Science in Business Administration from North Carolina A&T State University. I'd also just like to mention a few of the long list of strategic partnerships for her work, including but not limited to Wells Fargo Advisors, IU Lilly Family School of Philanthropy, Johns Hopkins University, Kellogg Foundation, University of Georgia, and the United Way of the National Capital Area, and several others. Ebony, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you here with us today. Thank you so much, Michelle. It's always interesting uh, to hear yourself and all the accolades. They're like, oh, that's a cool person. I want to meet them. <laughs> so thank you so much. Well, thank you, thank you, thank sure. you. Well, that's how I felt uh, when I learned about Young Black and Giving Back Institute and Give 828 less than a year ago. And being mm-hmm. passionate about philanthropy and giving back myself, I was excited to learn about your work, what you're doing, um, and also wanted to share this information with our listeners. Um, so let, let's begin with your college education. So you started out at North Carolina A&T State U, uh, pursued your undergraduate degree in business admin and marketing. Let me ask you, at the time you began your college education, did you have a vision for the work that you're doing today? None whatsoever. Absolutely not. Um, And I think probably the biggest mistake that I I made or one of the biggest uh, failures I thought was that I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I think I knew in my heart of hearts what I wanted to do. Um, yeah, I knew that I was always called to ministry, but that just seemed like, you know, such a square thing. Um, and I knew that I wanted to teach, but I hadn't really tapped into that quite yet. And so I kind of went with what was told to me, you know. Um, I went to college. I wanted to I wanted to be a doctor. I, I knew, I, I also knew that for sure. I wanted to go into medicine, but I was um, desperately afraid of, of uh, of the math. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm not going to make it. I was like, I don't want to be 26 and still in school. Ha ha, now, right? <laughs> um, yeah. Looking now the door at 40, you're like, girl, that was so stupid. Um, so dropped that major. And then my my biggest dream was, was to be an actress. I through middle school and high school. Um, I was with a theater company in New York. Um, I'm from Harlem uh, in Brooklyn. And so I, you know, all through college, I mean, all through high school, you know, it was like, okay, prepare yourself, get your headshots. And, you know, my parents put all this money and I'm like, this Broadway, you know, aficionado. So I'm like, yeah, okay, now I'm, I'm going to pursue this acting career. And my mom was like, you want me to spend how much money for you to go be an actress? Girl, no, good job. <laughs> so <laughs> that didn't pan out. So it was kind of like with every turn I took, 
you know, it was either, you know, it seemed to be a closed door or, or wasn't approved. Right. And I didn't have the confidence to say, you know what, believe in yourself with this, you can get through the science or it doesn't matter what you say, like, I'm going to do this acting thing and I'm going to be happy. So I found myself being told that having a business major would be much more, uh, not only possible, but would give me a diverse skill set. Um, I was dating in college. That was the only thing he probably gave me. That was great. Um, <laughs> that but um, he's a big business major. I was like, okay, you know, I'm a freshman, big time senior. So I thought I was doing something. So, um, and needless to say, becoming a business major was one of the best decisions I could have made at A&T, award-winning uh, business program. Again, I didn't really know what that meant. Didn't, had no idea what the end result would be. Uh, but because of that, um, and I don't want to get ahead of your question, but going through that process in undergrad, so by the time I landed sophomore year, I was in the um, I was in the business program, you know, had to take some classes over the summer because I missed, you know, freshman year because um, it wasn't my major coming in. And, you know, I was active on campus and, you know, part of student government. Um, that same sophomore year, you know, I became a Delta. So everything seemed to be flowing. You know, I was a leader on campus. I, you know, knew everybody knew me. I knew them, um, you know, didn't really have a click per se. And I enjoyed my college experience. You know, one of the best decisions I could have made was going to A&T um, and sort of finding my way uh, and, and then preparing me for the professional world, no matter what it was. So, um yeah, had no idea what I was going to do. And even still after graduation, I was like, eh, still don't know. Um, <laughs> so I'll stop there um, <laughs> because it, it, the story goes on. But um, yeah, I had no idea. <laughs> okay. So, so, let me, so let me just ask one question before I move on to wanting to talk about the two master's degrees that you earned. So when you said that uh, entering the business um, administration and marketing was your best, was, was really like one of your best decisions is that mm-hmm. now white fast forward because now you are leading your own nonprofit and mm-hmm. uh, really, you know, maybe being able to leverage that education um, for a mm-hmm. lot of other uh, initiatives that you've created uh, in your, in your world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I would say the the foundation of understanding business um, to being operational and logistical um, at a base level has been extremely helpful in understanding, you know, how things are supposed to be. You know, I, I also grew up, you know, in a house with two parents um, who were social workers and both master degrees. So I, I always had this understanding of the importance of not only education, <clears throat> but also, you know, um, sort of having a business mind. Um, I knew that I didn't want to sit necessarily in a corner office, but I knew that the foundational block that the department taught us, and I took an entrepreneurial class there as well, um, I've always sort of leaned in that, in that direction. Um, and as I got older, realizing that I've always been very entrepreneurial um, in college. I'll never forget they taught you about being an entrepreneur. So I was like, oh, yeah, I'll do that, work for somebody. Um, but the truth of the matter is I've always been um, sort of having vision about, about certain things. And to be quite honest, um, in, in many ways, being a Black woman trying to traverse the corporate space and even a nonprofit space can feel really daunting um, at times, it, it's not very affirming. Um, you sort of question yourself and your confidence. 
And you're like, wait a minute, I know I can do this stuff. And so I've found that being an entrepreneur um, in, in many different ways has uh, helped to remind me um, of, of who I am and what I can do. And um, so I've sort of leaned in that direction because there's so much more autonomy um, in that space. And uh, yeah, yeah. And so you continued on to earn two master's mm-hmm. degrees, one from NYU mm-hmm. in public public relations and corporate communications, and the second from Wesley Theological Seminary and Divinity Ministry. Do you also feel, um, you know, that that having those master's degrees and that that post, you know, graduate uh, or the graduate education has that also contributed to you, as you said? just your level of confidence. Uh, I mean, you know, we kind of all, I'm sure at times go through this, that what they call the imposter syndrome, we're like, mm-hmm. I know I can do this, but we kind of second guess ourselves. And like, do we really belong here at the table with all these other mm-hmm. people that we're surrounded by? Did, did those, those other, you know, are you continuing your education and earning those two masters contribute to, to that confidence? Um, Part one, and then part two, just curiosity is why the master's in divinity ministry and how, like, how does that play into what you do now? Yes. So, um, so the master's from NYU, and that's a good question. Like, well, how, how do you put two and two together? So the business degree from undergrad, um, so let me say this, when I, when I got out of undergrad, I ended up my very first job. Um, I was one of those annoying people that asked for your signature um, when you got out of the subway, um, getting petitions for, at the time, the woman who was running for borough president. <clears throat> so my um, supervisor at the time, um, who's now mentor, big sister, her husband um, was a senior manager at Viacom at MTV at the time. And so that led me to my first real job. And so I I was at Viacom for about four and a half, five years. And the business acumen that I had at A&T, working then with um, with Michael Armstrong for those first five years really helped to solidify that business side and sort of that operational work. And I, again, I didn't know what to call it, right? I was like 22. Um, I didn't go to school for this. Um, I was doing a lot of production logistics. We had international um, we worked in the international division, so I'm, you know, traveling all over the world. I had no idea the gym that I had in my hand, right? Um, and so hindsight's always twenty twenty. but I'm learning all these things. And I remember my teacher say, you know, you can't explain what you do, but you just get it done, right? So, you know, whether we were traveling to Japan or, you know, there was a big temple event coming up, you know, I'm the one organizing and putting together the agendas and, you know, booking this person and that person. And just, it, it was just, it was my lane. It was my vibe. And did not, as I said, I didn't know what that meant, but I also knew that there was a calling for me to feel like I wanted to do more. And working with celebrities, management, you know, even into like, it's it's all, it looks fun on the outside, but I felt that I wasn't living my best life. I wasn't actually living according to what I was called to do. And so I began to hear more about this nonprofit sector. Uh, and so I left and I worked for this um, this black guy with a really weird name named Barack Obama in Ohio. <laughs> oh, um, my gosh. <laughs> for about um, how many months? It was about two months. It was the tail end of the campaign, but they needed folks to go to the swing states, right? Ohio, Pennsylvania, Nevada, et cetera. And I was like, yo, this is, this is great. So I'm going to take this. And my team was super supportive. 
to the point where they were like, hey, it's a six, eight week gig. You can keep your job. Like, we'll hold it for you. Come back. You'll be fine. So, again, being young and dumb, you don't really realize the value in that, right? Like, I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm going to go work for Obama and I'm going to get a job and I'm going to work in D.C. and the White House. Shabu did not happen. <laughs> and so I cried. I remember coming mm-hmm. back and just being so riddled with guilt because I didn't have a job. And so I went back um, for a little bit, did some freelancing in Atlanta. So I was sort of trying to find my way. Um, and again, sort of hearing this, you know, reverb uh, whenever I would sort of bring up, well, I'll go to Ethiopia to teach. I'll go to Japan to teach. And it's like, no, you know, so this is a constant from my family. Like, what are you doing? You know, I want to travel. So, you know, you're in your 20s, you're figuring it all out. And so mm-hmm. um, then I finally land a a nonprofit job. But what I did not understand, and I I tell my students now, um, anyone that I'm, you know, sort of advising, is that nonprofit's great, but you got to work for the right nonprofit. If you don't care about the mission, then it's pointless to be there because it it then feels like a job, right? Um, So my first, you know, so my first um, nonprofit gig, if you will, um, it was a museum in Brooklyn and um, tiny museum. So it wasn't a Brooklyn museum. It was this really tiny museum. And I was like, this sucks. Like it was, it, and now as, as I look back on it, you know, it was just this pervasive whiteness um, with the history of this girl that I grew up in. And I'm like, well, where are the black people? Like it just, it just didn't work. So there goes that. Um, then I worked for another historical society um, in Brooklyn, which was definitely up my alley, um, but it didn't pay. So I'm like, okay, I gotta do something else. Um, so I kept finding all of these small things, we go through it. Um, and then I landed my first um, nonprofit job and I was also going to NYU. So a girlfriend of mine said, oh, you know, you're really good at, you know, people and relationships. Why don't you look into public relations? And I'm like, sure. Right. So, again, I'm, I'm not really standing in my confidence, not really knowing. So I'm taking advice from other people that tell me this is going to be good for me. So I look into the program at NYU and it sounds great. Corporate communications, public relations, absolutely go for it. And I do well in the program. Um, you know, I sell, you know, have, um, you know, all of these, you know, opportunities, but I'm still focused on nonprofit. And as my experience has taught me to that point, there was a deficit in the sector as it related to engaging with new stakeholders. So I started to learn this new language um, about donor relations and uh, stakeholder engagement. Uh, Millennials, that was a term at the time. I mean, it's still a buzzword kind of, but then it was like a really big buzzword. Um, You couldn't really say black with anything because it was still really taboo. Um, So I was able to couch my research um, around this idea of engaging with this next generation of of black donors. Um, And they were millennials. So that was the first research project that I did. Um, And it turned out to be pivotal for me in terms of going back into the nonprofit sector, because now I had this angle that nobody else really had, right? I was beginning to to gain this skill set and this knowledge base that was putting me in a position to now have a blog, right? So I started this blog called Friends of Ebony, um, which came out of um, sort of a a loss, family lost the boss I talked about. They lost their daughter. So I'm like, great, it's going to be our first fundraiser for their foundation, um, you know, and then I'm starting to get asked to write, um, write posts, write blog posts, right? You know, tell us about your research, you know, this, you know, millennial research, and I'm helping organizations, you know, on a very like entry level, understand that, you know, this millennial research doesn't include black millennials. So you're leaving out a whole group of people um, that could be part of it. 
And of course, it's better articulated now, but then it was like, oh my gosh. And so I continue on this path in the nonprofit sector. Um, finished my degree at NYU, so I left the job in D.C., um, the, the nonprofit, again, that, it, again, didn't care about the mission. I just heard the job, wanted to be in D.C., wasn't a good move. And I was like, I don't care about kids in playgrounds. I mean, I care, but I don't want to build them, so I'm coming back to New York. And mm-hmm. so um, finished my degree and then landed here in D.C. at a really large nonprofit, um, and I was the director of marketing. So finally, finally, Michelle, I was like, boom at this national nonprofit, director of marketing for the entire region. Um, I got it, right? It's all going to start working out. Mm-hmm. And then the job sucked. It was a toxic environment. <laughs> um, That's a, a huge friends. disappointment. You know, and you're like, oh, man, I got this great degree. I've got this research. And I started to feel this tension, right? So now, as I mentioned, I'm building. I still have this entrepreneurial spirit. You know, Kellogg is asking me to come sit on a panel about diversity and millennials. I get a call from um, AFP out in Vegas. Hey, come, you know, speak to our chapter about millennial um, engagement. My job didn't like it very much. Oh, no. It, and I, I just I was like, what? I was like, I've got this expertise and you all are not leaning into it. Like, I'm here for you. You know, this is helping yeah. you, too. Like, I'm not sitting on these panels and, and saying I don't work for you like this. But it just. So anyway, so I learned that, okay, and this is where the whole being a Black woman is sort of having this particular skill set and not really feeling that even though you're at the table, that all of your skills are really appreciated, that, you know, they're more tolerated. And so it began to, A, push me away from the organization. They had their own structural issues. So then find myself in this eat, pray, love journey in Spain in 2014, um, come back and um, I live with um, one of my line sisters. And I am like, all right, finally going to go teach. I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to go back to Spain, and it's going to be great. Well, I get another transitional job that didn't really <laughs> work out. Um, so, again, I'm sort of putting my dreams on hold. And then um, one of my girlfriends, um, we kind of did a swap. They, uh, I had a relationship with St. Jude, so they needed a PR person. She left her agency here in D.C. She went to work for St. Jude. I took her place at the Public Affairs Agency. Again, Michelle, here I here I find myself in a role that is not appreciating all that I'm bringing to the table, mm-hmm. um, and so I and that was the first time where I realized that I was um, I was a diversity trope. I was hired because I was a black woman, so was my friend, and to the client it looked good, right? And so mm-hmm. that was the last non full time nonprofit job in that respect that I took, um, where I realized I can't continue to do this. So. Finally, I get to the ministry piece, which is why you asked how it connected. Didn't forget. Um, got to a point in my life where, um, so my eat, pray, love journey kind of is after a terrible relationship and job. And God was putting me on this path to focus on what it was that God had really called me to do. And as I mentioned, even before I got to college, I knew that ministry was part of my life. Um mm-hmm. Church was always important. Faith was always important. Always grounded in that. And I finally said, okay, God, I'll make a deal with you. If you can pay for me to do this whole seminary thing, because I knew that was a requirement of my denomination, I was like, I'll go, right? I'm like, no one's going to pay for me to go to school. Like, I'm going to call God's, you know, God, you know, God called called my bluff, what I was trying to say. School was paid for. I said, well, God, gone it. Here I am, you know, saying, okay, Lord, I accept it, but you got to pay for it. And he's like, okay, cool. And it happened. 
Right. And then it happens. I'm like, really? So I left the agency, which was what I needed to do anyway. I was very glad about that. Um, and yeah, so then I started this journey um, of ministry and really, really, really starting to see, okay, it's starting to make sense. Um, in all of that, I know we'll probably pivot to Young Black and Giving Back, but I still had Friends of Ebony. And in 2014, around the same time I came back from um, Spain, I realized that, hey, there's an educational piece here that I want to split. And as I was focusing more on who I was to become, I wanted to actually take my name off of this, um, you know, the sort of the big screen. And I wanted, I wanted something else. I didn't want to continue on with, you know, Friends of Ebony. It just seemed like too much for me. So that's how the Institute started. I took the educational arm of the work I was doing and created this Institute, this space for other folks and other black and brown folks in the sector to learn with one another um, in cohorts, in trainings, et cetera. And that's really how the Institute was born. And so while I was in seminary, I was able to um, work on Friends of Ebony, sort of really dive deep into that um, do begin to do a lot more consulting work around um, diversity, equity, inclusion. Um, and then the philanthropic piece just sort of naturally came out of it and learning more about churches and understand that there's a divide or misunderstanding um, around stewardship and donor engagement, which still ties back into, um, you know, to the nonprofit space. So now I find myself I'm at this intersection of faith and philanthropy, um, and particularly Black philanthropy. And so, you know, it's been a long journey, <laughs> as you can see, as you can hear. Um, but the 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 the, um, the mask of divinity came out of a requirement, right, to walk the ordination path. But then also me sort of saying yes to this part of my life that I knew that I that was always there, um, and I was the one that was in my way. No one ever told me no. It was just me. So that's kind of how I got through the ministry piece, and that. Is ultimately how uh, my relationship um, with the um, Lilly Endowment began um, through Wesley and also through Duke um, Duke Divinity, which I have a relationship with now. So I'm still walking that path. Um, but yeah, that's how I ended up getting those two non-related master's degrees. <laughs> well, I I admire first of all, I admire your perseverance uh, and just keeping you know keeping it moving forward when you landed in a role that just wasn't for you. Um, some people, you know, and that, that takes courage, right? Because some people might kind of feel stuck or feel safe, or even if they're uncomfortably safe, but I, so I admire your perseverance. Your journey has been amazing so far. And I, I can kind of see where your bigger calling and all of everything you were, you had an interest in or a passion about in your education kind of all came together with the initiative, you know, in the initiative of Young Black and Giving Back Institute. So I'm mm-hmm. kind of seeing how this all comes together, which is fascinating. So I, I do want to just take a minute to read the mission of Young Black and Giving Back Institute, because I think it's powerful. The mission is to educate, inspire, and empower Black Gen Xers and millennials to invest in changing their communities through philanthropy. So let me ask you with that that powerful mission, how in your opinion, in your experience, how does philanthropy help to change communities? And in particular, um, you know, with this now the focus for your mission on Black Gen Xers and Millennials and working with them to help uh, uplift communities. How how does that work? Yeah, um, again, really great question. And I think depending on who you ask um, and depending on what side of the coin 
um, sort of what part of the Venn diagram people sit in, in terms of philanthropy, you know, um, I have colleagues will say, you know, it's, it's the love of mankind, right? Like that's the root word, um, the philos. And when you think about it, if we just take that word, right, um, before it was co-opted by this sort of dominant philanthropic institutional culture, it was about helping one another, right? And in communities um, of color, which is the focus of our work, it's always been there, right? So there's always been a love for one another, care for one another. So there's always been this philos that we've been doing. Um, and so that's philanthropy. Um, but what, where we have come to is when we think about philanthropy, we associate it with being old, white, and wealthy, right? So the Rockefellers, mm-hmm. the Lilies, the Gates. Um, and so with that idea, the notion that you must have this amount of money in order to make a difference has become pervasive and it has taken away from others' um, objectives and, and other people's actions that do make a difference. And so you find yourself with this split um, of grassroots organizers, right, which is now sort of this new wave term, social entrepreneurs um, that have been able to do I would say the philos work, right? The love work, because you're going, there's no way that you can work for nothing for years, right? To try to solve this um, societal problem and someone tell you that, okay, you're just doing it just because, no, you got to have a love for it. You got to have a love for the people. Um, so I think that that's one side of the philanthropic coin, but I think in the way in which you and I um, recognize it, it is it has a lot to do with funds. And so the work that we do through the Institute is intentional where when we do have board trainings or fundraising trainings, which was part of our work um, previous, but prior to, um, you know, 20, well, really around 18 starts to make, make a switch um, for capacity reasons. But um, it was all about if, if we can get you to a place to be a really good board member and get you to a place to understand how to fundraise, then that will make you a better philanthropist, right? Mm-hmm. And not really taking that word too seriously um, because I know everyone doesn't necessarily like that moniker, but saying, hey, a good leader, a good civic leader, a good, um, you know, social entrepreneur. We had a lot of folks who founded nonprofits and just didn't know which way to go. You know, we had a lot of folks who were like, hey, that's not, you know, starting a nonprofit's not my lane. You know, I, you know, I'm a associate at XYZ Law Firm and I want to serve on a board, but I don't really know how. So we put our focus in our peers, right? And then we began to build relationships with um, white organizations who would say, "We don't know how to reach the folks that you that you have in in yeah. your um, in your community. How do we how do we get more board members?" So that would allow me then to go to University of Georgia and talk about it. Um, mm-hmm. It would allow us to build a relationship with the Central Carolina Community Foundation um, to help them, you know, build African-American affinity group, et cetera. So that was the education part. And then in 2018, so let's, let's, let me sort of also shape this. I don't get a dime from Young Black Giving Back. It is still very much my passion project and probably will always be, um, but partly because I'm leaving in that way. Um, but I enjoy other work more to like work for and make money, right? Um, mm-hmm. But I, I enjoy the work with the Institute. And so because it is a passion project, um, 
when it comes to us fundraising, it always became like, okay, we got our annual fundraiser. You know, I can kickstart this, you know, PR background I have and this comms work here, there and everywhere. And we can get some money and we, we make the money that we need to get by because we weren't really doing enough. Our programs would pay for each other. Terrible model. Definitely don't advise people to do that. But that's just how we, we were able to make it. We made it work. We did good with it, right? It's my thing. You mm-hmm. can't tell me I'm wrong. But I say that to say um, what we ended up doing in 2018 we had this really scrappy campaign um, on August 28th. We had a volunteer that, you know, August 28th is this amazing day. April DuVernay also has an introductory video at the um, Museum for African American History and Culture that talks about August 28th and the milestones that happened on that day. And we said, huh, okay. It's, you know, Black Philanthropy Month. Let's do it. Let's have our own fundraiser. And we did. And we raised only about $5,000, which is huge for us because, that's pretty much all we need all year to operate. Like, we, I mean, when I tell you we're scrappy, Michelle, we were scrappy. So we're like, we're good, right? And so that then turned into, wait a second. If this can work for us, it's got to work for other organizations, which is how um, Give 828 was born um, out of the background that we already had um, in sort of working with our our communities, but then realizing that many in our communities, like the growing need and desire to sustain smaller grassroots efforts was there. And I knew that the given Tuesdays of the world and whatever other given days were not shining lights on our work. And so that's mm-hmm. when we began the pivot. Um, and that's how you and I met um, through Give 828. Um, and so I can also mention here for everyone, um, thank you to Michelle. That's how, you know, we met. She was a donor and had a match at her former company. Um, And so we were really grateful for that. Last year was one of the first years we actually began to see matches and we began to see so much ally support given the environment. And so um, I'll stop. And congratulations on on surpassing last year's goal of 250,000. Yes, we did. We did a good job. That's that's how we got there. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's how we got there. Um, So. And it, it, you touched on the historical significance of August 28th. Can you just talk about that a little bit more and, and what that means? Sure. So this is one of those um, serendipitous days, if you will, um, within American history, um, within the Black community. Um, it was the day that Emmett Till was killed. Uh, it then became the day um, that Hurricane Katrina hit um, down in New Orleans that over that weekend. Um, it became the day that then Senator Barack Obama decided that he was going to run um, for president. Um, so you you have these these moments that um, that begin to to touch one another, and you're like, wait, all of these things are happening on um, on August 28th, and it's like, I wonder, you know, nobody knows why, of course, but they just become these these milestone stone moments. And we we realized from Emmett Till, um, oh, I forgot, 1963, um, Dr. Mm-hmm. King gave his I Have a Dream speech. So nice. you have 1965, 1963, 2005, then 2008. Um, and then we learned just last year, it was also the day that Jackie Robinson joined Major League Baseball. And then, of course, last year we lost um, King T'Challa on the same day. <sighs> So this day, for some reason, it just it becomes this this force um, for us. And so we did not 
want to lose the history, you know, of that day and the significance of it. So that's that's mm-hmm. why we chose that day. And it's and it's during Black Philanthropy Month, which is the month of August. Yes, yes, very very symbolic day. And as you were going through the list of all the uh, events that that happened on that day. Uh, you added a few that I had heard for the first time, so it it, it mm-hmm. is quite a significant day, August twenty eighth. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. How how do organizations like how how do they become eligible to be part of this day and have a presence on your website? Yep, another great question. Um, you're just full of them today, Michelle. So <laughs> we um, we will we will launch registration officially this year um, again on Juneteenth. Um, it's become our thing. Um, so registration starts on Juneteenth. Um, this year, we will require um, approved registrations um, to have a registration fee of $25, which helps us to cover some of the admin costs because the bigger you get, the more costs come along with it. And I said we're scrappy, but giving days are pricey. Um, and they <laughs> are because we also make sure that we're able to give cash prize and cash prizes and incentives to those who participate. So you register on June 18th, I'm excuse me, June 19th, um, but an important piece, as I'm sure you remember, Michelle, um, it is intentionally for Black-led, Black-benefiting nonprofits. And so you might say, well, what does that mean? Um, AFI defines it as at least 50% Black staff and 50% Black uh, board members so that you begin to have an organization um, that establishes an equitable space for everybody. And there are far too many organizations uh, domestically based, um, even if they serve international um, community that serve com- black and brown communities, but at the highest levels of influence, they are not black. And mm-hmm. that creates a power dynamic issue um, that organizations, some are very aware of and, you know, um, admit, and then others don't. And so that also comes out of research board source you know, talks about it every year. They do their, um, every, I think it's every other year, they do their board, um, they do their board board research and they put out their board report. And you find that 92% of nonprofit boards are white, um, mm-hmm. where I believe 72% um, d- uh, say that they want to be diverse, but then only 10% act on it, right? So you've got mm-hmm. all of these misrepresentations um, of, of equity, right, for organizations and particularly those that serve our community. Um, and so while we appreciate um, the the intent, what you end up missing is, or what you end up getting is sort of this white savior um, element. You know, oh, you're going to Rwanda to save all the kids, or you're doing this in the Black community. And it's all admirable work, but my question is always, well, how are you serving this community if you don't have people who know the community and who are able to make decisions, right, mostly about decision-making, that becomes a problem. So you could have an all-Black and brown staff serving in Southeast, but if your board is majority white, then who are are still making decisions for those kids um, Mm -hmm. or that community in Southeast or, you know, wherever you might be? So that is the reason why we are so adamant about organizations being Black-led and Black-benefiting um, sure. so that the decisions are made in an equitable way. Um, and so, yep, June 19th kicks off the day. Um, you can go on and register at give828.org. Um, it's a quick process this year. We have uh, a bit more capacity um, to get the approval process done. Um, if organizations are, you know, last are approved from last year, 
you know, you sort of bypass the wait, if you will. Um, but once you fill out the application, um, we get your registration fee, then we kind of put it in the hands of the organization to run their own fundraiser, get people to their respective pages on the site. Uh, we give them the toolkit that they need. So you get email templates and graphics and um, social media language that you can use to really help, you know, pump up and encourage folks to join you on August 28th. Um, this year, there'll be about five webinars um, that will be um, two of which, three of which will be instructional. Um, and then the other two will just be supportive in terms of um, financial management, things you might need um, as an organization. So we try to equip our, our, our um, orgs pretty well so that they'll have um, a, a pretty good standing chance. And most organizations are able to raise between 1000 and 2500 on that day. Um, right. And for most that, well, not most, about 25%, um, you know, that kind of gives them a basis for the annual donations. Um, and many of our organizations, um, over half of them, you know, say one of the best things that they need new donors um, through yes. this day and through this opportunity. So um, we find it to be a win-win for everybody. It's great, great information. Thank you for clarifying and, and giving that information. So what is this year's goal for Give A28 in terms of funds that you'd like to see raised? So this year, um, so this year we're going for um, five hundred thousand, um, and we want to get uh, at least a thousand organizations registered. Uh, some people are like, oh man, that doesn't sound like a lot. Well, we started with one hundred and twelve, one hundred and fourteen organizations that raised twelve thousand dollars. So we've come a long way. Um, yeah, long way. So we've come, yeah, a very long way. Um, <laughs> even though we had four hundred and sixty-seven participating nonprofits last year. We had about 700 that applied, and for some re one reason or another, they didn't. You know, they didn't come through the system. So we're pretty confident, um, particularly with this year and the education um, DEI initiatives, that we'll get more of our organizations that will qualify. So a thousand um, nonprofits to register um, and take part in the day, um, and then a $500,000 goal for them to raise collectively. So that's where we are uh, with our goal. Great, great work in progress, right? <laughs> Mm-hmm, for sure. This is all really great information. This is just what I wanted to do is focus on Young Black and Give Me Back Institute, its mission, uh, Give A28, the significance of that day. I want to just wrap this up with asking you, what does equity and philanthropy mean to you? And how do we continue to move equity and philanthropy forward? Yeah, so for me, it one, it looks like accountability. Um, you know, creating commitments and benchmarks uh, where staff and board are held accountable to that. Um, and, and that may mean, that's going to mean different things to different organizations, but we're not just, you know, as I heard today, we're not just in a book club phase, you know, reading how to be anti-racist or white fragility, like, okay, get it, got it. But what are we doing as actionable um, and who's holding us accountable? Um, it means a shift in culture. Um, meaning that we don't just talk about, you know, the, the milestones um, for folks of color for, you know, Latin Heritage Month or Black History Month, right? Like we felt like it's part of who we are, it becomes our fabric. And that's going to take time, uh, particularly if you're in an environment that's, you know, white dominant, right? Like who's, who's going to care about a Juneteenth? What does that even mean? But learning about it, celebrating it, so it can become part of what your organization is a part of. Um, and then I think another, the third piece I would say are pipelines to leadership. 
um, because organizations have gotten, they've heard the word diversity and they've heard, you know, inclusivity. So they say, okay, well, we'll just hire more black people. Well, you hire them at a junior level or less. You know, you hire, you know, the brown folks somewhere, middle management, entry level, and then it becomes this, this glass ceiling that is just, it never, it never gets broken. And folks are frustrated, you know. Um, there is a group out in Seattle that has just started um, an organization that focuses on community-centric uh, fundraising. Um, and these are brothers and sisters, um, all persuasions of, of color um, with an affinity who were, who were fed up, right? So they were development officers, major gift officers, um, who were fed up being the only one um, and having limited access to leadership and recognizing that the donor uh, perspective um, and the donor paradigm continues to be very white. And many organizations think white and wealthy, right? Um, and when it comes to, to fundraising. And so if you don't have pipelines to leadership, then again, back to the, the equity who's making the decisions for the communities that you say you want to serve. Mm -hmm. And so those are the three areas to me, um, accountability, commitment, culture, um, and pipelines to leadership. So that across the board, we're saying who we are, what we're going to do, and then we actually do it. And then we have people in place that can make sure that they're reflective of the communities. Not to say that we're a monolith, but there, there's a point of, of understanding. There's a point of, um, relationship that, that can be built. Those are my three. Yes, no, thank you for that. So building relationships, uh, which then within those relationships comes trust and learning each other. Uh, and then also, as you said, going and having those discussions with the communities to ask what, what the needs are in the communities and including people uh, from those very communities that that these nonprofits are serving and funds are being raised for. Um, uh, so, so very, very meaningful. Thank you, Ebony. Thank mm -hmm. you so much for joining us today, uh, sharing your insights, talking about the meaningful work that you and your organization are doing. If we could just wrap up here by you sharing with our listeners, how we can celebrate and support you, the mission of young black and giving back Institute. And again, uh, give a 28 on August 28th, as well as all year long. Yes. Um, well, thank you, um, Michelle, for having me. Thank you for, you know, your, your continued allyship um, and, and support. We definitely appreciate it. Um, and so for us, uh, we are currently um, looking for larger corporate support for the day. We know that there are lots of um, businesses um, who are looking to touch nonprofits uh, within the Black community. Uh, and so, as we know, oftentimes the work that gets done isn't always acknowledged in institutional philanthropy because, you know, that's just kind of how it works. They may not have the budget or they, you know, don't fit into a grant portfolio, et cetera. Um, and so we've, we've turned to um, looking into more corporate support so that we a, are able to manage and maintain this day and really have the operational support that we need. So part of it, um, you know, comes down to operational and administrative support. Um, but then also, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, we want to incentivize those organizations who are part of the day. And so we are able to give cash prizes as large as they can possibly be. But the largest cash prizes that we gave last year were um, as small as 250 up to $1,000. And so we were able to do that 
um, for the organization throughout the day at different power hours, right, magical hours throughout the day with the generous support of our sponsors. And so the more sponsors that we have um, who are able to um, directly support these organizations in that way um, helps us to make the day even more exciting for them. Um, because literally it's, it's free money on the table that they're able to make as they're fundraising. So um, that support is um, is welcomed. Um, I'm happy to take emails. Um, my email is ebony, E-B-O-N-I-E, at youngblackgivingback.org. Again, that's ebony, E-B-O-N-I-E, at youngblackgivingback.org. Um, to have further conversations about how you can partner with us for um, Give828. And one thing we didn't get a chance to discuss, Michelle, but um, I know you know that we are getting ready. Um, we started a fund last year. So we used our um, our funds raised from Give828 to start a giving fund so that we will be able to support organizations uh, within our community. So we'll be, um, you'll be hearing more about that. Um, and if anyone wants to support, you can just go to our website, which is youngblackgivingback.org. Um, make a donation and those funds um, will be part of our giving fund, which we will be we will be making available um, starting in uh, April of this. Well, yes, this is almost April. Yes. So um, April, the applications will be open and then we'll do our first mini grants um, for a thousand and um, twenty five hundred uh, three grants. Uh, for the or, for organizations that we know um, who need it most, so we um, we are making a larger shift in sort of the philanthropic space. Um, so yeah, that's that's where we are. That's how you can reach us. We'll certainly be you know cheering you on and supporting you both on Give E Twenty Eight to surpass your goal of five hundred thousand this year. Uh, but as you mentioned, not only August twenty eighth, but supporting you and your work and the work of Young Black and Giving Back Institute all year long. So again, Ebony, thank you so much. And thank you to our listeners. We've been talking with Ebony Johnson Cooper. You can support Ebony and the Young Black and Giving Back Institute at ebonyandyoungblackgivingback.org or youngblackgivingback.org and give A28 at giveA28.org. Your partnership, sponsorship, and support is meaningful and helps move equity and philanthropy forward. So check them both out. Remember to follow us or click that subscribe button and join us next week for another interesting discussion. I'm Michelle Woodard, host and co-producer, bringing you philanthropy infusion for new ways to expand giving and infusing equity into your philanthropy. Tune into Philanthropy Infusion on Anchor, Apple, Spotify, and SoundCloud as part of the Kelson on the Air Social Work Podcast, a Kelson Communications production.